Welcome to The Compliance Files, brought to you by the Association of Compliance Officers in Ireland. The Compliance Files is a unique podcast series giving you access to industry insights and key perspectives on how the evolving regulatory landscape is driving change, challenge and opportunity for compliance professionals everywhere. Hello and welcome to the Compliance Files podcast of the Association of Compliance Officers in Ireland. I'm Cathy Jacobs, I'm President of the ACOI and it is a great pleasure for me to host this podcast. The fitness and probity regime in its current guise was introduced by the Central Bank under the Central Bank Reform Act 2010. The Central Bank sees it as critical to the protection of the public interest and to ensuring that there is public trust and confidence in the financial system in Ireland. The core function of the fitness and probity regime is to ensure that individuals in key senior positions referred to in the legislation as pre-approval controlled functions or PCFs within a regulated financial service provider are competent and capable, honest, ethical and of integrity and also financially sound. There is considerable attention and rightly so being paid and indeed speculation on the upcoming senior executive accountability regime, which the central bank will be unveiling over the coming months and will keep us in compliance very busy implementing in 2022. But the first step in ensuring that a regulated firm will be SEER ready will be to ensure that you're compliant with the FNP regime and PCFs will not be going away and will feature in some shape or form in the new accountability framework. The responsibilities that come with being a PCF, as opposed to a role holder without that designation, are complex and onerous, as is implementing the regime itself. This Voice of the PCF episode of the Compliance Files podcast is the third in our series of the Voice of Compliance. And in today's podcast, we will explore the development of the FMP regime and the drivers of it, the legislative framework, the challenges in implementing the regime, the important link with culture the personal risk of those in a PCF role, including what an individual should consider if they are approached to undertake a PCF role, among other themes that are explored today. I'm delighted to welcome today Orla O'Connor, partner in Arthur Cox's finance group and chair of the firm, and James Marr, group head of compliance, permanent TSB. Orla's primary areas of practice are financing and financial regulation, and she has worked on numerous financing and restructuring transactions, both for banks and borrowers. Orla is also a member of the firm's financial regulatory group and advises on bank reorganizations and on a wide range of regulatory issues relating to payments, e-money, anti-money laundering, mortgage arrears and consumer credit. She has also advised a range of banks, private equity firms and servicers expanding and restructuring their operations on regulatory licensing and other legal issues and on their interactions with the central bank. Orla has also advised on a range of bank asset disposals by both the Irish and international banks operating Ireland as part of their deleveraging strategies. James leads the regulatory compliance and conduct team in permanent TSB. James previously held senior risk compliance and internal audit roles in AIB. He is a former director of the ACOI, where he chaired the association's technical committee. A licentiate of the ACOI, James holds an MBA and a diploma in corporate governance from UCD and is a lecturer on the Institute of Banking's professional certificate in consumer protection risk, culture and behaviour in financial services. Orla and James are here to discuss with me today the roles and responsibilities and challenges of those appointed to PCF roles. Welcome to the Compliance Files podcast, Orla and James, and thank you very much for, for talking to us today. I'll start with you, Orla, if you could paint the context for us. The legislative and regulatory framework for fitness and probity is a mixture of primary legislation, statutory instruments, codes, guidelines, FAQs, 
two DHCO letters, the latter both be issued, being issued within the last two years. And then we get to the European Supervisors Guidelines on Suitability. So there's a formidable amount of regulation to marshal and to convert into an implementable framework. Could you just tell our listeners, how did we get here with such an array of regulation to contend with? Well, Cathy, firstly, thank you for, for having me. Um, and just, uh, I suppose, to set the context, uh, as most of your listeners will know, fitness and property is an area that the central bank has been very focused on, particularly over recent years, both on firms overseeing the fitness and probity of their control functions and pre-approved control functions, as well as individuals uh, occupying those roles. And as you mentioned, the current regime, as most of your listeners will know, was introduced in the Central Bank Reform Act 2010. Prior to that, as those of us who are old enough to know will know, the financial regulator had very much operated a principles-based approach. uh, And that approach had been criticised very heavily, particularly in the period post-2005 as a result of various uh, overcharging and other issues that arose. And the financial regulator had published various updates that finally morphed into legislation in the 2010 Act uh, when, when it was all put on a statutory footing in the Central Bank Act 2010. And the Act applies to, to really the full range of financial services providers, so everything from banks to MIFID firms to credit servicing firms, and provides that individuals in those institutions that perform controlled functions, whether they're customer-facing roles or I think what, what we're really talking about today, more senior management roles or, or PCF roles, must have a level of fitness and probity appropriate to that role. And while the responsibility is on the individual to meet those standards, it very much also falls on the institution to be satisfied on reasonable grounds that the individuals meet those standards and that the individuals and that the individuals have agreed to meet those standards. And in addition to that, for institutions to make sure that those in PCF roles or those who are being put into PCF roles go through a pre-approval process with the central bank. In terms of the sort of the what's happened since 2010, there have been an array of PCF roles, sorry, PCF and CF roles designated close more than 45 types of PCF roles designated as uh, over that 10-year period and as up to as recently as Oct- last October when the role of chief information officer was added obviously very very timely given the current environment and in addition to the act in addition to the 2010 act the central bank has also published fitness and probity standards for individuals to set out for individuals the specifics of the fitness appropriate standards they need to meet. We can put some some flesh on what fitness appropriate means, and then guidance on the fitness appropriate standards, how they're how they're addressed in practice, and a considerable number of FAQs which have been updated over the years as industry has struggled obviously to to deal with what this actually means to your original question in practice and how do you implement this regime in in practice. So you could say this this regime and how it's evolved is probably the the first a long step, the first step on the on the journey towards individual accountability, which obviously you mentioned here earlier which is obviously where, where, we're, where we're now headed. But fitness and probity is obviously the, the road that we've all been on for 10 years in terms of that journey of individual accountability. And obviously, we were, I mean, and your listeners will be well aware that the central bank's focus over the recent years has, as was coming out of the culture report in 2018, they've issued two dear CEO letters in 2019 and 2020, I suppose highlighting concerns they have around, they'd had around FP compliance, both from supervi- their supervisory uh, oversight of institutions up to 2019, and also from a thematic inspection from tw- between 2019 and 2020 on firm systems and controls for FP compliance. And I think those letters are useful in terms of maybe setting the scene today for what the central bank themes that the central bank I think has focused on, which I think are also the the, the issues that industry has has struggled with in practice in implementing the re, the regime. And maybe just to talk about the themes that have come out of those letters. Firstly, I think a focus on the firms, perhaps more so than the individuals, and emphasising that firms have the first line of responsibility here to have the right systems and controls in place. Firms and particularly the boards in, in institutions 
have need to be aware of their F&P obligations, a focus on firms and ongoing monitoring. I think a, a suggestion that the upfront monitoring, the upfront due diligence that firms are required to do has been done, but that perhaps where they see, where the central bank sees issues, and I think this would be consistent with what we see in practices in the ongoing monitoring, not just the annual certification, but the, the ongoing monitoring of, of, of fitness and the fitness and probity of, of individuals, particularly those in PCF roles. The central bank has... I suppose being critical in some instances of the escalation of concerns arising but not being escalated are brought to the central bank's attention and also of the the rigor in the PCF pre-vetting process uh, maybe critical of firms in terms of yeah, central bank's expectations around how rigorous the vetting is before someone is put into a submits an IQ or goes into a, a pre-approval process with the central bank. The central bank more recently, I think, has also been emphasizing the role of the board. And obviously that's not by any means limited to fitness and probity, but they've been particularly emphasizing in the fitness and probity context, the importance of the role of the board, that the board needs to be fully aware of the F&P, uh, the F&P obligations that apply. They need to really test sort of executive level stroke board appointments. So the board... The board has a role in, in making a role in making sure that they are testing board appointments rigorously, uh, board potential board appointees rigorously before the applications are submitted. That they have a clear oversight of how FMP is being managed and the re- what the framework is for management within the organisation. They've also the central bank's also been. I think very pro, uh, focused on the escalation processes and procedures within organizations, both internal escalation and escalation to the central bank, that that system needs to be very robust and that issues of concern need to be escalated without delay. And that's an area, maybe we come back to that, where I think most institutions have really struggled is, is to decide when and how issues are escalated, given we are focusing on, we are talking today about individuals, issues that have particular particular implications for individuals uh, if, if obviously you're talking about findings of, of, of or challenges around individuals' fitness and property. And Orla, with the themes that have come out of the, the, the recent Dear CEO letter, would that have been reflected in the challenges that you've seen in your practice to your clients in implementing F&P? Very, very much so, Cathy. I mean, very, I think they're, they're very consistent with the challenges. In our experience, where issues arise, and I think this is probably consistent across a number of, inst- of institutions, is, is in the allocation of responsibilities, firstly, for, for, for fitness and property. Where do they fit within the organisation? Obviously, on a sort of a let's say a, a, a normal course in a normal course scenario HR has a huge role to play in fitness and probity they're obviously in most organizations they own the recruitment process they have the determination of whether where someone sits whether they're in a is it a control function role but they are only part of the I suppose the jigsaw for an, for an organization compliance is obviously at the heart of all this particularly when you're talking about PCFs so sometimes the interaction between HR where HR ends and where compliance begins or how they interact with each other can be challenging and, and you know gaps can emerge particularly when it comes to issues on an ongoing basis. So I think most institutions manage fine on the upfront diligence. They, they manage, but where issues arise in practice uh, is often where there are issues or challenges around an individual coming out of an internal investigation or the potential for an internal investigation or coming out of potential enforcement. At what point does the organization ask questions around the fitness and probity of that individual? At what point is that analysis done? Can it be done when an ongoing investigation is, is, is happening or an ongoing enforcement is happening? How do you balance really, really critical issue in practice? How do you balance the rights of individuals you know, who have a right to fair process for whom any question mark over fitness and probity is a very serious implication for their careers? How do you give them a right to due process? And balancing all of that, I think, with the central bank's expectation that they will be kept 
informed that the matters will be escalated. So I think that sort of out of the normal course piece institutions, you know, understandably struggle with yeah. because there are individuals' rights at play as well. So managing that is a very delicate task. And likewise, wise, in terms of internal investigations where there are fitness and property concerns, making sure that, you know, and this is a real challenge, I think, for functions like internal audit and others, making sure that in that investigative process, the words that are used are carefully crafted to make sure that, you know, institutions say what they mean to say and aren't loose in terms of their of their their findings because because clearly there are individuals rights at play but there's also survey as well so a lot of a lot of issues in that sort of space where HR and compliance overlap and I think in the broader governance space and I'm sure James can speak to this as well just how things get escalated back to the board and making sure you have the right sort of reporting lines the right MI coming back to the board on fitness and property and the right board oversight and process I think is, 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 is has been a challenge in practice the two other areas I just mentioned and stopped talking at that point is is um one is a I suppose a very simple issue, but one that I suppose most compliance professionals know is probably at the heart of a lot of problems, which is record keeping. You know, for all of this, a lot of the time we see institutions who've done exactly what they should have done, but they can't establish that they've done it. So record keeping sometimes not being as robust as it as as it might be. And the second point was just on on the sort of annual due diligence. And obviously we can see where SEER is going and, and that institutions are going to be asked to, to sort of certify. But I think we've obviously all seen a gradual shift from a sort of a reactive annual certification where it's all down to the employee to a more proactive. Uh, I think the Central Bank has gradually told institutions that they need to be more proactively monitoring uh, the fitness and probity on an ongoing basis of their PCF roles in particular. And you know things like adverse media searches kind of becoming part of that. And I think that's been a sort of supervisory feature in our experience over recent years of institutions being told that you need to go further that most of the guidance sets the minimum standard but the expectation is that you're able to stand over what the fitness and probability of your employees so you so you need to you need to do more than you're currently doing and I think that's obviously reflected in the in the move which is obviously coming towards institutions being asked to certify the fitness and probability of their control functionals. Okay, thanks, Ola. So a lot there. So division of responsibility between first and second line, really important individual rights versus, you know, obligations under the regime, record keeping, which is critical because as we all know in compliance, if it's not written down, it didn't happen. And, you know, the role of adverse media searches coming in and the F&P standards being a minimum. So, so there's a lot for firms to, to grapple with there. Thanks for that, Orla. How does the FMP regime and the firm's internal framework for compliance slot into the overall governance and corporate governance of regulated firm? And you know, what is the role of the board? I think, Kathy, in terms of the role of the board, it's obviously the role of the board is a big focus across across so many areas for the central bank now. And in the fitness and probity space, I think what the central bank is focused on is is clearly evidencing that the, that the board understands their fitness and probity uh, obligations. And certainly in practice, we're seeing a lot of focus on that from boards and a lot of focus on training. Clearly, a lot of focus at board level on the on the forthcoming changes under SEER, but also I think boards very very focused on two things: one, knowing the re- the current regime and making clear that their their organisation has the right systems and controls in place currently to meet those obligations and also some gap analysis under being undertaken by institutions based on those two two dear CEO letters to make sure that there aren't any gaps arising in their own organisations. Re- really getting their house in order, not just because SEER is coming, but also just coming out of, I suppose, some of the issues that have been highlighted. A lot of focus on board level up, on the role of internal audit um, and, you know, doing doing more to audit fitness and property compliance. We certainly see um, a lot of rigour. I know the Central Bank has been critical of this, but we've certainly seen a huge amount of rigour on board appointments at, certainly with some of the larger institutions and on succession planning. And, and maybe that isn't 
playing through into maybe smaller organizations. But we see huge levels of rigor on succession planning, skills mix, and a lot of work being done at board and nominations committee on, on that piece. And I think certainly our experience is that any, any individual being proposed for a board role, the individual is probably acutely aware at this stage of the of the rigor of that of the approvals process and of the need, to, you know, fitness probably is, is really at, at the top of the agenda for, 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 for the central bank, but also for that individual and, and that institution. The one maybe just point to make on the on the sort of governance side and, and just on the PCF appointments, maybe a peripheral a peripheral issue, but and I'm, and I'm sure you've had similar experience that central bank is, you know, is extremely rigorous now in PCF appointments. And they've obviously signaled this themselves and it is consistent with our experience that they are more there are more withdrawals, I think, from from PCF application processes that there might have been historically. There is more of an indication now of someone is not going to make the cut and I think they're they're increasingly indicating if they're not at an early stage in the process if they feel someone won't get through the process maybe not very directly but maybe indirectly and that there is a lot there is you know, a, a very significant level of rigor in those processes. Just to bring James in, welcome James to the, the Compliance Files podcast. Have you any observations on, on what Orla's been saying? Kathy, thanks. And thank you for the invitation to join you today. Orla's covered a lot of ground there, but one point she was talking about, which is really important, is about board succession planning. But I think, and certainly for large firms, there has to be detailed succession planning as well for PCF roles more generally at senior management levels. Firms need to be thinking about how are they developing people to succeed um, existing PCF role holders in the event that they move on to different roles or, or different firms. So it's not just board succession planning anymore. I think it is broader to the broad exco, but also PCF role holders. Orla, you've, you've talked extensively just about the, the Dear CEO letter and the contents of it. How should a firm approach addressing the issues identified by the central bank in the letter? How should they demonstrate that they have taken it on board and, and are you know, performing their gap analysis? I think firstly, I mean, awareness and understanding is probably fundamental. So I think training, training is particularly timely and we're seeing plenty of this, not just at board level, but around the organisations so that there's a going into the next phase. In particular, there's a real awareness of what fitness and probity means. The training is the first piece. I think the second piece is, is your fitness and probity policies and procedures. You know, we, we certainly see institutions having revisited those, which you would expect coming out of those, those letters to make sure that all of the issues are fully addressed. But obviously policies and procedures are only useful if, if they're implemented. So then a, a real look also, I think organizations looking a lot at the moment at sort of organizational mapping, uh, making sure roles, roles and responsibilities are very clearly set out, making sure ownership is very clearly understood of, of all of the granular aspects of, of fitness and probity, particularly things like role changes, things that are maybe a little out of the normal course. So roles change, roles expand, who's considering that, who, who owns that, how are you know sort of, sort of proactive diligence how is that being managed how, how broad is the annual how broad is the annual checking of fitness and property how how are you demonstrating that's proactive and ultimately how is this all flow probably one of the most key points how does it all flow back to the board what information is the board getting who are they getting it from is there a fitness and property committee what is their role how are they how are they performing that role so a lot of governance work a lot of work in the governance space a lot of work to make sure that there are no gaps in terms of how how organizations are, are, are dealing with fitness and property. And I think also, and probably the most challenging area for most organizations, how is the engagement with the central bank in this in this space? Uh, who owns it? What what's de- what's deemed to be material? Always a always a challenge. And that the, the whole that that whole issue of balancing the rights of individuals with regulatory reporting obligations, probably the one of the most difficult, I think, areas for most.
most institutions. But we've seen a lot of focus on this just coming out of those letters and also obviously with SEER being really at the top of uh, the agenda of most of most boards. And we have seen some enforcement actions by the central bank in relation to contravention of FNP obligations, I think in 2017 and 2018. And, and we've seen one this week. What do these enforcement actions tell us about the central bank's strategy on FNP? Well, I think, Cathy, I mean, the central bank has, a, has, has maybe three regimes, um, all of which they clearly take very seriously. The, the first one we talked about a bit, a bit their gatekeeper yeah. role, you know, there's increasing levels of scrutiny of, of applicants for PCF roles and, and, and obviously a, perhaps a higher bar to meet. But likewise, their, their investigative role and their sanctions function, they've also used, they're also using increasingly. So it's, it's increasingly, I think, fitness and property being used in a more interventionist way. And I think the, the enforcement actions that you mentioned tell you that culture and accountability, which obviously are words that have been used you know, a lot by the central bank over recent years are top priorities and the nature of the issues they've identified in their enforcement actions, re- really fundamentally failure of systems and controls and inadequate vetting, failure to keep records, failure to report issues of concern are, v- are viewed seriously. And I think likewise, the action they've taken against individuals, you know, obviously are signaling that their focus on individual accountability, but equally their focus on firms to be monitoring fitness, fitness and probity. And likewise, I mean, they've obviously signaled that individual accountability is clearly coming as part of SEER, but also they're also looking at breaking the current participation link enforcement and, and that they, they see individual, not an increased focus, but they see that they see it probably as more likely that they will be taking individual enforcement actions, again, enforcement action against individuals and perhaps signaling that they will not, they won't be shirking that responsibility. Turning to you, James, and you're you're a very experienced PCF of longstanding and, and you oversee in the second line the PCF framework in, in your own firm. And indeed, you're a lecturer on culture and, and conduct. There's been a huge focus from the central bank and regulators globally on culture. What do you see as the link between the FNP regime and culture within a firm? Thanks, Cathy. I, I think it's a very interesting one. I suppose if we do think about culture, there are very many definitions, I suppose, if we look to the Financial Stability Board, which defines culture as an institution's norms, attitudes and behaviours related to risk awareness, risk taking and risk management, or summarises the institution's risk culture. And, you know, culture is formed by values, assumptions and beliefs that drive behaviours. And and so when the Financial Stability Board were looking at this, they set out a number of indicators of a sound risk culture, which include tone from the top, accountability, communication and challenge. So I suppose culture is often simplified as the way we do things around here and and when you think about that line we is the people you know the firm doesn't do things it's the people make the decisions so you know when we're talking about the behavior of firms we're talking and culture we're talking about people within them so if you then bring that into fitness and probity and think about it in that way we're looking at the individual competence and character and how people undertake their role. So that's clearly a very strong link to culture. PCF role holders are the most senior people in the firm. They're the board, senior executives. So they clearly shape the culture of the firm. And and Orla has already outlined in her introduction the background to the fitness and probity regime and um, the events that led to it. So I suppose, you know, you link that back into culture. So I suppose ensuring that people at the top of an organisation are competent and are capable and act with integrity, which is what fitness and probity is about. It's it's central to ensuring a strong risk culture. And that's why we see 
the importance that's attaching to the PCF process. And it's also why we're seeing the support for the introduction of the senior executive accountability regime, that very clear link. But, you know, when we're, we're talking of PCFs today, but it's important, I suppose, when the G30 said that desired values and conduct should be evident in the tone from the top and the voices of the middle manager should be heard in an echo from the bottom and should infuse the entire organization and its businesses. So it's important also that this strong culture is evidenced through the behaviors of all staff. And, and that's why the control function role holders are also important. And, you know, we are seeing that emphasis in the Dear CEO letters and recent letters on the control function role holders as well as the PCF role holders. So I think there's an inextricable link between the two yeah. paths. Since the introduction of the regime and its current incarnation in 2010, we've seen the number of, of roles designated as a PCF grow with the addition recently, as Orla mentioned, the new PCF 49 Chief Information Officer, PCF 50 Head of Material Business Line and PCF 51 Head of Market Risk, the latter two under the banking category. What is the difference in the personal risk or mindset for a PCF role as opposed to you know, pre-designation or if the role had never had that designation attached to it? And what should an individual consider if they're asked to undertake a PCF function? Yeah, that's an interesting one, Cathy, because look, there is an argument that if you have a strong culture, it really doesn't matter whether you're in a PCF role or not. Yeah. You know, the behaviors should always be with integrity and people should be competent in discharging their role. But, you know, we do know that PCF roles are more senior and that those role holders can have a greater impact on the behavior of the firm. So being a PCF role holder does bring it with it more responsibility, increased expectations from stakeholders and very critically, the central bank being one of those stakeholders. So, you know, that does bring increased personal risks for individuals appointed to a PCF role. So I suppose if you're thinking about being asked to move to PCF function, I think, you know, considering that personal responsibility, I think there's a number of items people should consider. I think obviously they have to be satisfied that they have the knowledge and capability to discharge the role. That should apply to any, any role. But they also have to consider whether they'll be able to discharge the role effectively within the firm. And so, you know, they need to be thinking about factors such as the culture of the firm. Are, are they comfortable that the culture is the right one for them? People need to think about the authority they will have because they, they will have accountability. You know, will they be able to influence the decisions and the critical decisions that they need to influence? The positioning of the role within the firm is um, important. And, and clearly having a full understanding of the regulatory requirements that they'll be responsible for. So that there's an amount to consider there. We'll have a lot of compliance officers uh, listening to this. So if you take the PCF role ahead of compliance as it is, you know, somebody looking at that role should be thinking, will they have enough authority within the firm? Will they have access to senior management and the board? What's the culture of compliance like in the firm? So it's as much about the context of the firm as it is about the individual that I think people need to consider. And I suppose another factor is the central bank interview and preparing for that, I think, is quite important. And, and it's, it's really important to think about how somebody can demonstrate that they can discharge the role and that they've considered some of those factors along the way. And in the context of the firm, it's an important interview it's important to prepare well for it and it's you know it's not 
just about the individual. It is about the individual and their ability to shape and influence within a firm as well. So, so a lot there to consider for people, I think. Once a PCF is safely onboarded and receives their approval from the central bank and is in their role, is operating in their role, what should the individual be cognizant of, aware of in the discharge of their role on a day-to-day basis? That's an interesting question, Cathy. Through being a PCF, there will be ongoing obligations for individuals. Clearly, there's the obligation to ensure that you continue to comply with fitness and probity standards. And there's also a requirement under Section 38 of the 2013 Act to report certain matters to the central bank. So there are very specific responsibilities attaching to the role. The question for many PCF role holders, of course, becomes about the challenge of balancing those responsibilities as a PCF with their responsibilities within the firm as well. And that becomes more complex probably for some decisions and particularly where decisions are being taken at committees where the role holder has to be able to influence those as well. So look, I think in practice, many of the decisions that people take are clear. There are a lot of decisions taken every day that are clear and straightforward, but decision-making can be complex in some circumstances. Often decisions are being made under uncertain circumstances and on the basis of incomplete information. And the context in which firms are operating can be changing very quickly. It's at those points and in approaching those decisions that the PCF must be very clear on their understanding of the issues, the level of information that is available to them, any assumptions that are being made, and their understanding of the regulations that apply to those decisions. An individual needs to have thought through their rationale in arriving at any decision. And in the event that they are asked to explain that at a future date, then that they are really have that clearly thought through. That's important for PCF role holders. James, and as a, as a practitioner in the field, what do you find are the main challenges in implementing and operating the F&P framework? Some of the key challenges are around awareness and having well-documented processes. And indeed, Orla mentioned the importance of record keeping as well. The responsibilities for different aspects of fitness and probity should be clear. But when we look at it in terms of day-to-day operations of organisations, one key challenge is the level of change that's taking place at the moment. For fitness and probity, when making new appointments, whether that is a new hire or an internal appointment, it's important that fitness and probity is central to the recruitment process. It's not something that's performed after you've made your decision to hire. It's very central to it. So it's important that the role is assessed early and that the competencies that are required are clear from the outset. Another area of challenge is that organizations are going through a lot of change and those organizational changes can present challenges. And this is probably more for control functions than PCFs as the PCF roles tend to be more clearly defined. If someone is taking on new responsibilities or different responsibilities or moves role, it's important to consider whether fitness and probity assessment needs to be updated in those circumstances? Are there changed competencies that need to be assessed? And that's clearly one of the challenges. And that then needs to flow into the register of CF role holders. One of the other big challenges for the industry at the moment is that fitness and probity is not just part of the HR process. Financial firms in the past were very much standalone or were part of a group. But now these firms are increasingly part of complex financial ecosystems with a lot of different third parties And outsourcing is an increased feature in financial. If you go back to the 2018 paper from the Central Bank on outsourcing, when they published details of the findings of the survey of 185 regulated firms, 
there were 7,700 outsourcing arrangements in place. Complexity of that kind of understanding where controlled function roles are being discharged is extremely important. So building your fitness and probity process, not just into your HR processes, but also into your procurement and outsourcing processes is really important and can be complex. If a firm has good processes in place, a lot of the challenges come from the changes that are happening in the environment that we're operating in. And certainly on the outsourcing, it is, it's so, more, so much more prevalent that that is a key risk. And James, going back to the Dear CEO letter, the recent one following the, the thematic inspection of compliance under the FMP regime, there were findings under a number of themes, as, as Orla was outlining, and awareness and understanding within firms of their compliance obligations. So the initial and ongoing due diligence processes, oversight and control, or the right source, which you've, you've, you've discussed, processes and channels for effective engagement with the central bank and the role of the compliance function uh, with regard to the FNP regime. So taking one of those themes, uh, due diligence, it's an important touchstone of the FNP regime. So can you paint a picture for our listeners of what does good look like in practice? Yeah, I, and again, look, I think, Cathy, this is about looking at both the initial due diligence and the ongoing due diligence. So for both clearly documented policies and procedures that are actually applied in practice is critical and very different functions can be involved. So it's really important that there's clarity of the responsibilities of, you know, in many firms, it'll be, there'll be hiring managers, but there'll be HR, company secretary for board and and compliance. I, I mentioned that, you know, due diligence really needs to start at the beginning of any recruitment process. And, you know, the shortlisting and interview processes are important points to consider whether candidates meet the requirements. And I think good practice is to use standardized fitness and probity assessments, which are completed for all roles and that that gather in the information that is gained through the other processes so that it's kept centralized and consistently. And there should be a checklist as well to ensure that all the steps are completed for searches, obtaining evidence of qualifications, and, and, and also issues arising from assessments. I think it's really critical that those are documented and clearly assessed and that there is a forum or a process to assess those. And, and Orla mentioned fitness and poverty committees as, as an example. And I think at the end of the day is when you're looking at um, your process, sometimes the old controls are best and, you know, there should be a repairer and a reviewer for any fitness and poverty assessment to, to ensure that the rigor has been applied. I think for PCF appointments, where the board are involved, the importance of the detailed assessments being brought to the board to ensure that they're well informed and can demonstrate their consideration of all factors as well. On ongoing due diligence, I suppose the look, the most recent central bank their CEO letter set out the expectations and made it clear that an annual self-declaration is a minimum expectation. So that is really requiring firms now to have broader processes in place. And you know, in many cases, that's about aligning existing processes that are in the firm you know firms have performance management processes they have disciplinary processes they have complaint management processes for example and the key issue is that there is a mechanism to ensure that concerns in there are escalated and then that there's a formal structure to consider those concerns and 
um, and to ensure that that assessment is documented. And if there are agreed actions at the end of that assessment that are taken. So, so I think they're really important points about the due diligence process as such. And, and I think then, obviously, and Orla mentioned it, about having good reporting to the board on the operation of the fitness and property process. So, you know, and, and that's about the general operation of the ongoing processes and clearly the assessment of any issues that are escalated. And the board itself will probably take on some of those duties in respect of fitness and PCF role holders or certain senior PCF role holders. And James, the Dear CEO letter did mention the role of the compliance function. I did single it out uh, for, for a special mention. How important is the role of the second line in the FMP framework? Yeah, Cathy, it is important, obviously, but it is also second line. Yeah. So I, I think that's the first thing. I think compliance has to ensure that the areas involved in fitness and probity have good frameworks, good policies and good processes. Now, compliance may write some of these, perhaps particularly maybe the, the policy, but local procedures have to be robust as well. And, and I think compliance has a role in ensuring that. I think compliance will have a role in reviewing fitness and probity assessments, particularly for PCF roles. And, you know, it's important that compliance then are engaged early enough in that process to be able to influence the assessment. I think as well, compliance should be testing the operation of the processes as part of monitoring plans. You know, it's important to assess whether the processes are acting as intended. And particularly, as I mentioned earlier, organizational change and the level of reliance and outsourcing. So in developing monitoring plans, I think the compliance function needs to be taking those issues into account. And, And I also think Compliance has an important role in the engagement with the central bank. I, th- I think it's often the initial point of contact around some property with the central bank. And so that's that's quite important. And that needs to be open. And I think it's important as well to keep central bank informed on PCF applications so they know there are processes underway to appoint to a role and when, when to expect them because, you know, they're there, we all want to get these processes completed in a timely way. And I think engaging early with the central bank is important on that as well. Thanks, James. And going back to you, Orla, how do you see the FMP regime changing with SEER? Will we see elements like the IQ and rigorous due diligence? Are we likely, in your view, to see, for example, significant uplift in any work to be done on in any of the processes like PCF onboarding? Yeah, Cathy, I mean, I think if we... It's not yet clear, I think, how, how sort of PCF roles and the senior manager roles will, will overlap. But if we assume that they are going to be very closely aligned, I think the, the direction of travel that the central bank has been signaling is that there needs to be more rigor around the, the diligence done on PCF role holders. So I think we can probably expect that the due diligence will continue to be rigorous and They've clearly signaled the change that they're looking at, which is two changes they're looking at. One is to require firms to certify uh, their control functions annually that they they meet the fitness and property standard, which obviously puts a level of focus on the the broader certification of of, uh, control function role holders, but also that they're considering publishing uh, refusals of PCF applications. So both of those put, put a lot of focus on the firm's processes for diligence processes. But perhaps the more fundamental piece is one that James alluded to is, is really the diligence in some levels at an individual at the individual level, because the direction of travel is towards obviously individual accountability. 
and towards individuals being able to say as part of SEER that they took all reasonable steps to ensure that the business of the firm was controlled effectively and that they took all reasonable steps to comply with their regulatory requirements. The requirement that firms are controlled effectively and that they comply with their regulatory requirements exists currently. That's not a new requirement. But actually, James's point about if you're an individual in a PCF uh, process, if you haven't already been asking that question, then you would really be focused on that question of, can I discharge my own responsibilities? That's the core question for you. And that is very much around the context of the organization. So as an individual, if you haven't already been focused on that in a PCF application, I think you would be very, very focused going forward on how you're going to discharge your roles, a role. And in particular, how, when you get into this role, can you say you took reasonable steps to ensure that the business of the firm was controlled effectively and that it met its regulatory requirements that's a that's a that's an onerous obligation but it's not a new requirement for the firm but it is for the individual i think probably an increased level of diligence going into to those processes so very much aligned with what james has said earlier that the it's for the in, in many ways the focus is on the individual to really get comfortable going into a process that they've done their own due diligence on the organization what should firms do in relation to fmp in anticipation of and preparation for the incoming series well, we're certainly seeing those those organisations that have experience of the UK regime, I think, are looking to try and utilise that that experience and, and, and leverage it. But we're seeing look at their own current governance structures. So have they got clear roles and responsibility uh, outlines? Are, are their reporting lines clear? Are they happy with their own MI that they're, that's, that's coming up through the organisation? How are they going to discharge those reasonable steps obligations? I think that's a very fundamental one. How are they going to evidence and how are they going to enable their senior management to, to, to evidence that the controls were in place? Because those are not new requirements. So, the, you know, showing that your business is controlled effectively is an existing requirement showing that you can comply with your regulatory obligations. So looking at how they would will discharge those responsibilities once it comes in. And I think a lot of focus on awareness. I think a lot of, we're seeing a lot of training in this space currently, a lot of boards, uh, senior management teams, making sure that they are very familiar with, with the current regime and are anticipating because the central bank, I think in fairness, has been reasonably clear about what the shape of the, not maybe the detail, but the shape of the new regime will, will look like. So get getting very getting very um, familiar with that and I think trying to anticipate the organisation clearly compliance clearly HR potentially COSEC will, will be responsible for the regime when it comes in because I think the central bank's view is likely to be that they've, to- they've told industry over a period of years what the shape of it will look like there's no detail yet but that people should perhaps be anticipating what it's likely to look like I, I would agree with what Orla is saying there I think it is important for firms to be planning for this now firms shouldn't underestimate the amount of work that will be involved in this and leaving it until there's final regulations and our final legislation probably not a good idea because they won't have time to get the work done I, I, I think there's another piece here because we are talking about PCFs and therefore we're talking about SEER but I, I think particularly for compliance officers listening to this they need to be alert individual accountability framework as such is going to be much broader than just SEER and so there is a lot of work to be done to consider around what changes will come for the control function role holders conduct standards and a range of things like that so it's quite a complex project once people begin to start planning it so don't underestimate the work would be the advice yeah as well as keeping the FNP, the current one on, on track as Indeed. well. So there's lot, lots of plates be spun there. Orlan James, we've come to the, the, the end of our podcast. So just any any concluding thoughts from each of you on, on the role of the, the PCF? 
I think just, I mean, I may just echo what Jane said, that I think a lot of a lot of what firms should be doing now is perhaps getting their house in order, you know, making sure they're happy with where they are currently and, and starting early in their in their planning process. You know, to James's earlier point, I think if experience tells you anything, it's that there isn't a lot of time at the end. There's there's often a lot of time at this phase, but there isn't a lot of time at the end. And probably expect the central bank not to be overly sympathetic given the length the length of lead-in time there is here on the on the on the new regime. I mean, I think taking on a PCF role is very much like taking on, you know, a board role, and obviously a board role is a PCF role. Directors of boards are increasingly being told to do a lot of diligence before they take on that role and 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 make sure they're happy with 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 both the culture, but to James's point, their ability to discharge their obligations. And a P, a, a, the broader PCF roles are no different. You, you as an individual, you need to do that level of diligence even within an organization in which you currently work to make sure that you can meet those obligations, you can discharge them because that will be the expectation on you that you can. So do that diligence ahead of time to, to make sure you can meet those, those obligations or those responsibilities. And likewise for organizations who want, you know, strong individuals to, to, to take those roles on, to, to put those individuals in, in, a, in a position to discharge their obligations and to put those individuals in a position to be able to show that they took reasonable steps, that they were in a position to take reasonable steps and uh, to show that the, the right control functions were in place. Yeah, no, look, I agree with that, Orla. I think, Cathy, on the existing regime, the PCF regime, I think that it really is important to link, you know, the role and of the PCF and the culture of the firm and for people considering PCF roles to be very attuned to their ability to discharge the role. It, it's an important role. Uh, it's clear because of the level of attention that it receives. And, you know, people think carefully, but equally, it's a role that can be discharged. People shouldn't be afraid of taking on a PCF role either. Thank you to our contributors today, Orla and James, for sharing their insights and expertise on a topic that is and will increase in focus and significance over the coming months and perhaps even years. And if you want to hear more on this topic, and if you haven't done so already, I would strongly recommend you listen to episode nine on corporate governance and accountability, which among other topics, it deals with what to do when issues arise in relation to PCF role holders while they're in the role. And some really good steers and information in that episode from Karen Killalay, Lorna Smith and Alison Gibney of Maples. And thanks to you for listening to the Compliance Files podcast brought to you by the ACOI. I do hope that you find the podcast interesting and useful. We would be very grateful if you would review or rate this podcast. And until the next episode, goodbye. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Compliance Files. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast on whatever platform you are listening to ensure you don't miss out on future episodes.